0: Time has come for this
1: bookie. Okay. Um, nom everyone. Good to see you guys here uh, for the uh, second night of the Eat This Book series, or uh, literary mastication, um, as I like to call it. Uh, hey, uh, real quick, Caleb and Bernie, if you can go grab some flyers. Uh, so tonight... Uh, because it's the second and the last one of this Ethos Book series, we want to send you guys home with some swag, uh, that we've developed to encourage you in your Bible reading over the summer. We've gone old school with bookmarks. Now, I know most of you are probably like, I read my Bible on my phone, but if you're feeling nostalgic and want to actually read a book book, we've got some bookmarks for you with some helpful information to look at. So, uh, Bernie and Caleb will be getting those out. So, uh, Bernie did an amazing talk last week about the Bible and, uh, this key book that shapes and forms so much of our faith. It's the, it's the book that has literally changed the shape of nations, the shape of history. It has influenced our culture and our language so, so significantly. And he just really encouraged us to read the Bible. And if you're anything like me, you go away from a sermon like that and you're pumped. Eh? You're like, I need to read the Bible more. This is going to be great. And I've often heard those talks in my life. And it usually ends up working out two ways. I go and read the Bible and usually one of two things happen. The first thing that might happen is I get really excited and I think, I'm going to read the Bible, and so I'll start reading the Bible. And where do you start with a book? You go to the beginning, right? You go to page one and say, I'm going to read this whole book, like, cover to cover and be a good Christian, And so I'll get there, and I'll be reading, and I'll be reading, and I'll tear it through Genesis, and I'm like, yeah, Genesis, legit, cool stories. And I'll make it through Exodus, and you're like, yeah, Prince of Egypt, I know all these stories. But about halfway through Exodus, if you've done this like me, you'll notice that the plot just falls off a cliff, eh? All the forward momentum just stalls, and you get into uh, laws and regulations and how to build the tabernacle, and there's pomegranates carved onto everything. And usually at that point, I stop reading the Bible completely. I think, well, that was a good run. And uh, that's usually how far I get. So that's one way that I typically read the Bible. I can't tell you how many times I've read Genesis in the first half of Exodus because I feel super inspired. The other thing that often happens when we want to read the Bible is uh, you think, well, I don't want to start in Genesis because that's too complicated and I've done that before. So instead, I just need God to speak to me. And so you're like, God, I've got this real big issue. I don't know what to do with my future um, I really need you to speak. I'm really anxious about things. God, would, God, would you please speak to me? And so, so you get your Bible and you open it up and you just pray to God that something on the page will pop out. You know, anyone else ever done that? You're like, I'm just going to open it here. And sometimes it works out great. You're like, I'm nervous about the future. I'm in Jeremiah 29 11. Oh, for I have plans for you, plans to prosper you, plans to give you hope and a future. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Jesus. I feel real good about that. But other times it won't work out so smooth. I don't know if anyone's had this experience, but you'll look through, and the passages don't fit quite as well as you want to. Like, say you're praying, and you're like, God, there's this cool girl I'm really excited about. Is she the one? Is this the girl I should be dating? I don't know. Jesus, I don't know. And so you flip open your book, and you think, God, please speak to me, and you come upon Ezekiel 2320. There she lusted after her lovers whose genitals were like those of donkeys and whose emissions was like that of horses. Jesus, what does that mean? How many of you knew that verse was in the Bible? No, that's why you need to read the Bible more, all right? Sermon done. Uh, No. No, but th- this, this brings me to my first point, is sometimes if we open up the Bible, God, God can totally speak to you. God can bring one passage and bring it to life in an amazing way, and you're like, God, you are great. But sometimes it won't work out that way, and it brings us to the first lesson of the night, because tonight I'm talking about really basic ways, the basic things you need to know to help you understand and read your Bible, some real practical things. And so the first lesson for the night is this, the Bible is not a horoscope. Repeat after me. The Bible is not a horoscope. One more time. The Bible is not a horoscope. Thank you. That's good. Now, again, God can absolutely speak to you through any passage in here because he's, he's God, he's infinite, he's the Holy Spirit, and he can use whatever he likes to speak to you, and that's great. But if every, t- every time we're reading the Bible, we're assuming God's going to do that, every single time we just flick open the pages and hope he'll just bring some passage to light to us, What we're effectively doing is we're turning this great, grand narrative that's been brought together over thousands and thousands of years by all these different authors, and we're turning it into a horoscope for our lives. So tonight, what we're going to hopefully do is look at some of the bigger picture things and give you some practical things to go away with. So over the summer, you could pick one of the books and actually read it and find it helpful as opposed to just a horoscope, hoping that one verse pops out. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is um, translations. If any of you have ever looked at the Bible Gateway app, you've opened that up, and you're like, I should read the Bible, and then there's like this translation button, and you click on it, and there's like 30,000 of them, and you get mildly intimidated, like, I don't know what to do. NIV sounds safe, and so you just pick that one. So I want to explain how we kind of got to how we are, because often we think that the Bibles come to us in this kind of form. It's in English. It's easy to read. It's all correlated. It's put together really nice, but that's not actually where these texts come from. Most of the Most of the texts that we have come in these forms called manuscripts, where they're actually these old, 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 old documents that many are falling apart, many have holes in them, they're not written in English, they're written in ancient Greek, which is very different from new Greek, and all the letters and the words are pushed together really tight, and there's lots of words in these manuscripts that only appear in these manuscripts, and so translators have a lot of work to do to try and figure it out. So, I mean, to give you an idea, this is a picture of one of the original uh, New Testament manuscripts, which is pretty cool. And this is a really good intact one. Like it's really clear in most things to see. But some things that are hard for us to notice because we don't speak Greek is um, there's a few things that our English Bibles have that these manuscripts didn't. And uh, did you know that in this ancient Greek, there's no lowercase letters? It's just all caps. Just everything is capitalized. And then also because writing was incredibly expensive and hard work and it took a lot of time, they shoved everything and fit as much together as they could. And so another thing that these manuscripts lack is uh, often spacing, good spacing between words, uh, punctuation, commas, question marks. That, none of that's there. It's just the text shoved together really tight. And so to give you a picture of what that's like, it's like someone gives you a whole letter full of this. And you've got to figure out where the word begins and where the word ends. And this is what scholars have to work so hard to do. Because you look at that. And it's crazy intimidating. But if you spend enough time looking at it, do you know what's right in the center? Ooh, there's a famous verse, magic, right? And so this is essentially kind of what manuscripts and people have to do. They have to go through and figure out which piece starts where, where this word starts there, should the comma start here, the period start there, is this a question mark? So often um, people will be like, well, if there's a capital letter in your English Bible, it must mean it's God. Well, it's all caps in the original manuscripts. Any caps and lowercase you see in your Bible are translators trying to help you understand what the text is meaning. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? And um, the other thing that's really interesting is that you have the language problem, because this is all in Greek or in Hebrew, and so it's often really complicated. And any of you guys who speak two languages will know that uh, languages don't translate super easily all the time. There are often words in one language that just don't translate into another one. And so this has left translators with a big question of how do they translate it from this language into English for us to understand. And so there's basically three ways that they do that. Aha, this is fancy. So there's basically three methods that translators use. So one of them is word for word. So they'll go through that text, and they'll pick every word out, and they'll find the English equivalent, and they'll replace it with that. And now a lot of us would think, well, that's great. Why shouldn't everyone do that? That seems like the most original uh, great way to do it, because you get the most original wording. But often, if you've translated things, word for word doesn't make sense. Like, you're putting it together, and in English it can sound really clunky, because the grammar doesn't fit, and the ideas don't fit together. So some translators, rather than going for word, they do thought for thought. So they take the thought behind this verse, and they translate it into kind of a, an equivalent thought in English. And then some people will paraphrase, so they take a step back further even, and they say, this is what this general paragraph is trying to say, We'll rearrange some of the sentences and everything to make it make more sense in English. Now, I know this can get kind of dull, so let's use a verse that's more exciting. Let's go back to our Ezekiel verse, because everything's more exciting when genitals is in it. Um, So this is the NIV, right? And so the NIV is a thought-for-thought translation. And so this is how they translate that verse. Let's take a look at it in the NASB. So the NASB is word-for-word, like super, super literal. And you'll begin to see the differences. So this is the NASB. So she left left it after their paramours whose flesh is like the flesh of donkeys and whose issue is like the issue of horses. Now, that's a very literal word-for-word translation, but it doesn't carry the same oomph, does it? It doesn't have the same, like, "Mm," in-your-face translation. Let's take a look at another one. This is from The Message, which is a paraphrase. And that whetted her appetite for more viral, vulgar, and violent lovers, stallions obsessive in their lust. Different again, eh? Now, the message is a paraphrase. It's one guy trying to reword it and reform it in language that's more contemporary. And what he's picking up on is he's picking up on the general consensus of this whole paragraph because the prophet is talking to Israel and criticizing them for wanting to, and they're in the midst of uh, economic and military oppression, and he's criticizing them for wanting to go back to Egypt for help. And he's comparing their desire to go to Egypt for safety, like going back to violent, abusive lovers who are harmful to you, but you do it because it feels safe. See how it's kind of poetic and it still carries that heart? So that's how the three different translations attack it. And so if you're kind of looking for good options when you're reading, look, if you're looking for literal, NASB is great. If you're looking for something in between literal and thought for thought, NRSV is great. NIV is a good all-arounder that's just kind of in the middle. NLT is a lot more easier to read and paraphrased. And then the message is super paraphrased. Does that make sense? Is it helpful? Is it helpful just kind of understanding what these concepts are and how they fit together? And there's no right answer. Um, Often if you're doing like preaching or Bible study, people like word-for-word ones because then you can pick up on little nuances. But if you're just casually reading, lots of people like the NLT or the message. Um, The NIV is always just a great all-arounder for you to use. So if you're looking over the summary and like, what do I read? NIV is pretty safe for you to pick up on, just as a little bit of advice. But there's no one better except for... This is the one last thing on translations. Did you know that translations go through updates? Is that weird? The Bible is being updated. It's not sacrilegious, I promise. What it is, is as time has gone forward, we get better and better manuscripts. Uh, Archaeology is finding new and new documents that are coming up. We're getting a better understanding of language. We're getting a better understanding of culture. And so as scribes and scholars are working together, we're actually being able to get more and more accurate. So for example, the the NIV went through a big update in 2011. And in 2011, um, they shifted a lot of things that were more specific. So one of the things, for example, that they did is in the old NIV, when Paul would refer to the church, the NIV often translated it to dear brothers. Uh, Dear brothers, sing songs of encouragement to one another. Dear brothers, pray for one another. Dear brothers, do this. The thing is though, that word that Paul uses isn't saying dear men in this location. There is a word where Paul could have said, dear men, do this. But the word Paul is using is you, the general consensus, men, women, the family, the people of God, do this. So in 2011, part of the update that the NIV did is in any of those passages, rather than just saying dear brothers, they switched it to say dear brothers and sisters, which is really significant, I think, particularly nowadays because our understanding of language is changing. And gender-exclusive language is a huge, massive thing in understanding the role of women in the church. So the new NIV if you have a pre-NIV 2011, like this is my old Bible. I have deep emotional attachments to it. It's falling apart. It's pre-NIV. It's pre-2011. So don't throw away your 20, like pre-2011 Bibles. Put them up on a shelf for your emotional attachment. But go get a new Bible. It's okay. It might be really helpful for you. So there's that. And then the one other thing is this updating reason is a reason why I wouldn't recommend people to do all of their reading from the King James. It's great. It's really poetic, all the these and thys and ows and oohs, and it sounds really pretty when you read it. But it was translated 500 years ago. 500 years ago. Can you think of how much has changed in 500 years? This doesn't mean we're trying to keep up with the times. In 500 years, we're getting more accurate, more understanding of language. We have better access uh, to the scrolls and manuscripts. And uh, if you need any more convincing, the King James Version, it talks about unicorns. And if your Bible's got unicorns in it, it's probably not the main one you should be reading, all right? Is that general consensus we agree with that? All right, so that's that's translations. That's what to look for. So now, how do you read? Like when you actually open up the Bible, what are you doing? If we're not just treating it like a horoscope, what are the things we're looking out for? And so I've got a few just general guidelines for you to keep in mind that should hopefully help you when you read. And it'll keep you from doing weird, crazy things. Because often there are a lot of people that read the Bible weird, and they end up supporting all kinds of nutso jobs, like the Bible was used heaps to justify slavery, the oppression of women, uh, war. It's, it's ridiculous. What we're trying to do is give you some tools to avoid being a crazy person, right? Sound good? Right. So the first thing is to be aware of is genre. Now, you don't read a cookbook the same way you read a poem. Can you imagine if an alien showed up to Earth, Right and they just started picking up our literature, and they picked up The Lord of the Rings. And they're like, wow, that's an amazing story. And then right after The Lord of the Rings, they sat down and picked up a history of World War II. Now, they have no understanding of literature or style. All they see is two books that are talking about something. Can you imagine how an alien might read them as both history? Or perhaps read them both as story? Well, truth be told, there's the same thing that we often do to Scripture. So let me give you an example. In Romans, Paul says this. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Now, we read that, and we're like, that's a good to-do list. I won't be proud. I won't be humble. I'll be willing to hang out with people of low position, and I won't be conceited. We read that as things that we should do, right? That's the genre, the style of reading that we do. But what happens when you come up with a verse like this? Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. How do I apply that to my life? You want to know how you apply that? Genre. They're very different. Romans is a letter written to churches to talk about how to live the Christian life. Psalms is a collection of poems gathered together by people and, uh, and prophets and wise people throughout the story of Israel who are processing their life and their stories. Now, that doesn't mean that Psalm 137 is irrelevant, that we don't touch it, or because it's poetic, that it's of no use to our life. Far from it. Poetry and metaphor are some of the most powerful tools we have for using to understand realities. it is. But we don't read them the same way. Does that make sense? So when you read a Psalm 137, you're looking for, wow, this person, this this psalmist is actually processing their grief as Israel's been taken into exile. They've been taken into Babylon, and they're being mocked. And they're being, per- they're being attacked, they're being persecuted. And this is the psalm of grief and lament that he writes back. He's so furious. He pours out the heart, his heart to God saying, God, I just wish that you would smash their, their kids like they smashed mine. I wish you would do to them what they did to me. Now, that's a song of lament we can talk about. That's what we can talk about. How do we express our, our sorrows, our sadness, and our fears to God and the God who hears us and meets us where we are. Do you see how I'm applying those differently? Genre is how you do that. And there's all kinds of different genres in the Bible. There's narratives. So narrative would be the stuff like Exodus, uh, Kings, Samuel, these stories, this historical kind of story of what has happened throughout the story of the people. You've got poetry like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. You have prophecy. These are the books that are written to try and correct the people and bring them back to God, Isaiah, Malachi, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Uh, Then you have gospel, which is our four gospels. Did you know that's a style of literature? That's not just narrative, that's actually a, a story of a person collected and presented to make a point. And so all of our Gospels are a very specific style of the liter- literature that's trying to make a point. In the same way, letters, that's what you have in the rest of the New T- Testament, of uh, people writing to specific other people, giving them encouragement. And then Apocalypse, which is our book of Revelation, which is, again, its own genre. It's not narrative. It has a very distinct style that was written in other times. So genre is really, really important um, for helping you to understand how to interpret the Bible. And so if you're confused and you're like, oh, I'm starting with a book, I don't know what genre it is, you can Google that. You can literally Google what genre is Jeremiah. And you can read up on it. It'll take a few seconds because there's a lot of resources online from the Bible Project. We've linked you to some that can help you get an understanding of how to interpret this book. Because if you don't, it raises huge questions. So for example, you know the book of Job? There's huge debate within the academic community of whether Job is narrative or whether it's poetry. They're trying to understand what was this book written to do? Is this the literal story of someone who lived and this happened to? Or is this a poetic story that Israel is told to try and understand what God and how God is faithful when it doesn't feel like it? Can you see how it change how you read the story? Anyway, so genre is really important. Next thing, context. Just like wearing togs, context matters. As a fun little story, I was about 20 minutes away from preaching in togs today, because I got caught in the uh, accident out on State Highway 2, and I, didn't, I was at a pool party, and I almost didn't make it in time. So I was either going to have to preach in togs or in Caleb's skinny jeans, which I probably wouldn't have fit into in the first place. It would have been really enjoyable, wouldn't it have been? <laughs> I only made it up to mid-thigh. Um, So context, this is what's understanding when we say context, it's what happens before the verse you're reading and what happens after the verse you're reading. Because that really matters. It shapes what's happening. It's often a a thing you hear in churches is don't take that verse out of context. This is what we mean. Um, So here's a really famous verse. Uh, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Great verse, eh? You see it in like every sports team chucks that up and they pray that before they have to go play the other team. If you're about to eat a giant burger, you quickly pray that so you can shove it down your face. Like, it's a great verse to just chuck in to help God, you know, do whatever you want to do. It's a verse that if we take it out of its context, it's, hey, God can do all, we can do all things, all things. God's going to help me do whatever I need to do. Burrito, smashed. Thank you, Jesus. Is that what Paul was talking about? And you have to look at context. So let's take a little bit of a wider picture. This is the context that that verse comes in. So Paul is, this is a letter. So he's writing to people. And he says, look, I rejoice in the Lord greatly now at last that you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me but had an opportunity to show it, which is another way to say, hey, look, thanks so much for sending me the money that you did. I really appreciate it. And then he goes on to say, not that I'm referring to to being in need, for I've learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little. I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret secret of being well fed and of going hungry, of having plenty, and being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In any case, it was kind of you to share in my distress. Can you see how that verse changes dramatically? It's not about you get to do whatever you want because Jesus is going to help you and he's a magical fairy. Paul is talking to specific people saying, look, thank you so much for the gift that you sent me. But, I mean, thank you, I appreciate it, but I've actually learned that I'm okay even had you not sent it. Jesus is actually enough for me. So even if I'm dirt poor and eating bugs or if I'm living in a castle, I've learned the secret. I can do all these things through Christ and strengthens me. So context is super important. So if you're reading the Bible and you just drop in on a verse, a really helpful thing to do is go back a little bit and read the stories that come before it and then go after the bit and read the stories that come after because the meaning will often change when you understand why it's put together because these books that we have, they're not just a random collection of letters. They're carefully crafted books crafted narratives, and they put things in order for a certain reason. And when you read that order, you find a lot more meaning and a lot more hope. And I think you find a lot more of the spirit encouraging you when you do a little bit of that extra work. So then the last thing is culture. Now, funnily enough, the Bible wasn't written to you or to me or to any of us. Actually, when the Bible was written, no one had 21st century Aotearoa in mind. No one was thinking about us No one could give a toss about us because they were writing to specific things in their own culture and in their own story. And it's really easy for us to read it and be like, Jesus, what are you saying to me? Because we think it's the living word and the Spirit can speak to us. Now, he can, but we need to understand what the Spirit says to us after we understood what he said to them. Does that make sense? So let me give you an example because I think it's helpful in examples to actually see what I mean. So... um, Let's go to the Gospel of Mark, which is a book I'd really encourage you to pick up over the summer. It's a fantastic gospel to jump into. So the gospel opens up with this sentence. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Now let's pull up a different translation so you can see if there's any differences. Let's go to the NASB, which is quite word for word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you notice that there's a difference there? Difference between good news and gospel. See how they use different words there. One of the reasons that they use that different word, the NASB, is because gospel, when we read that, right, if we're going to read that for us, we're like, oh, so this is a story about Jesus uh, dying, forgiving me of my sins so that I can go to heaven, right? That's the gospel we'd normally think of. So this is the book that tells me how to do that. That's not what the author actually had in mind. We're just, is that sacrilegious? I hope it's not sacrilegious. It's there's a different point that he's trying to say, and it all centers around that word gospel. See, that, that word gospel isn't inherently a very political word. It's a, it's a political message. It was a word that was used, say, uh, when an emperor came conquering through a town, and the town was totally defeated, and he does his victory parade through the center. All of his heralds and everyone would go before him saying, hail and hear the gospel of Caesar, the gospel of peace the good news that Caesar is now your king. Or if there was a new birth or a new emperor came through, all the messengers would go throughout the entire world saying, hear the gospel of Caesar. Hear the gospel of Caesar. Hear the good news of the empire. The new king, the new ruler is here. And often the word that they would tie together with these Roman Empire emperors was Augustus, son of God. The gospel of Augustus, God's son. These are all language that they use to describe their own empire. And so, what happens here is that Mark was actually written to a predominantly Gentile Roman audience. A lot of the people who would have read this very, very early letter would have been in Rome. So, they're sitting in Rome, the very heartbeat of the empire. And how does Paul, or how does Mark open up his letter? You're li- he's saying to these Roman citizens, You're living under the gospel of Caesar, Caesar, the self proclaimed son of God. But let me tell you the real story, the gospel of Jesus, the true Son of God. Can you see why people were getting killed for reading this book now? Can you imagine how controversial, how political, how explosive this term was, this opening up the gospel with that phrase? It directly challenged the very way of life that this entire people had. And now once you understand that, can you then begin to think about the ramifications for us? So it's not just the good news of Jesus who gets us to heaven. What Mark is saying, here's the gospel of Jesus. The good news that Jesus is king, not Jacinda Ardern, not Donald Trump, not John Key, not Kim Jong-un, not any of these leaders who hold all the nuclear arsenals, all the greatest rulers of military power, all the great banks, all the great movers and shakers who think they run things. They're not actually king. The one who's really in charge is Jesus. Can you see how the understanding the culture adds depth to the letter? How it adds meaning, how it adds so much significance and, and, and breadth to who Jesus is? So when you're reading through the gospel, those are some of the things you're trying to think of. Genre, what kind of letter is this? Context: what's come before this? What's come after this? Culture, who was this written to? What did this mean for them? And now, what does that mean for me? And so, what I want to encourage us with is, um, look, I know this can be a little bit intimidating. You might be sitting there like, oh gosh, that's complicated, I'm out, I don't have a hope. You know, I, I can understand that. But there are great resources to help you. There's, honestly, on that bookmark, there's a, there's a link to the, a group called The Bible Project. They do YouTube videos. I'm about to show one now for the Gospel of Mark to give you an understanding there's great resources that could help you. Because the reason we're wanting you to eat this book isn't so you can become all academic. It's not so you can recite everything in Greek or in Latin. It's because we're wanting you to enter into the story. Because this story is the story, the real story that has shaped the world. This story is the real story that is leading and changing lives. This is the story that has brought us life and redemption. This is the story that shapes us into the likeness of Jesus. This is the story that helps us to look forward to what Jesus is going to do. This is where that story comes from. And we're not going to be able to be shaped by that story if we are not eating it ourselves. And so we're wanting to give you some tools so you can get into the story. And so the best way we want to encourage you over this summer is get into the Gospel of Mark. It is not that long, it's only a few chapters, and it's an amazing picture of who Jesus is. But more just than just reading it, let me show you one of these Bible Project videos because I think they are so, so helpful for understanding. Let's take a look at this one for the Gospel, the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel
0: of Mark is a book in the Bible about the life of Jesus. And the earliest reliable tradition tells us that it was written by a
2: guy named John Mark. Now, Mark didn't just grab a bunch of random stories about Jesus and throw them together. He's designed this book to address some really specific questions about whether or not Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So let's stop right there because that's a term a lot of people like me aren't very familiar with. Yeah, so the Messiah was a royal figure, sometimes called the Son of God, that Israel was expecting to come and set up a kingdom here on earth. And Around the time of Jesus, Israel was occupied by Rome, and so many Jews were hoping that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans and rule as king. But Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans. In fact, he was killed by them. And that brings us to the very issues Mark is trying to get at in this book. So in the first half, he focuses on who Jesus is. Is he really the Messiah? And then in the second half, he's addressing how Jesus became the Messianic King. And then right here in the middle of the book is this pivotal story that brings the two halves together, and Jesus answers both of these questions. Okay, so let's talk about the first half of the book, who Jesus is. So Mark makes his beliefs about Jesus very clear from the first line of the book. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. One of the
0: next stories is Jesus getting baptized and God's voice announces from heaven, this is my son. So it couldn't be more clear. It's presenting Jesus as the Messiah.
2: Yes, but... As you are reading through this first half of Mark, you will notice something really interesting start to happen. Jesus is going about healing all these different people and he's constantly telling them to keep quiet about who he is. This happens so many times in Mark's account. It is very strange. Yeah, why keep it a secret? So remember, lots of Jews had lots of different expectations about what the Messiah would be and do. And so Jesus does not want people to misunderstand what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah. And so with all that in mind, we come now to the pivotal story at the center of the book where Jesus takes his disciples away and he asks them, Who do you all say that I am? And Peter says what everyone's been saying, you're the Messiah, the son of God. But then something new happens because Jesus starts explaining to them how he's going to become the messianic king. And it is not what they expected. He says he's going to suffer and die and rule by becoming a servant. Or in his words, the son of man did not come to be served, but to become a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter is startled
0: by this and he rebukes Jesus because there's no way he's going to let Jesus die. And Jesus
2: responds, get behind me, Satan, which is really intense. It really is. But it highlights how important it is for Jesus that his disciples come to understand who he really is. And so here now in this pivotal section, Jesus tries three different times to have this conversation with them. And every time they respond in confusion and even fear. Okay, so this launches us into the second half of the book, where Mark
0: addresses the question of how Jesus becomes the messianic king. It's the last week of Jesus's life. He goes to Jerusalem, gets in conflict with the religious leaders, and
2: gets arrested. And he's put on trial as someone who's claiming to be the king of the Jews. He's even given a crown and a purple robe like a king would get, but it is all a cruel joke. Then he's mocked and beaten and hung up on a cross where he dies. And it's here in this crucial scene that we meet a new character. A Roman soldier. Who suddenly gets everything that's going on. He says, surely this is the Son of God. Which is crazy. It's an enemy who's first putting it all together that Israel's messianic king is the crucified Jesus. That's the structure of the book of
0: Mark. But the book does not end with Jesus dead on the cross.
2: No. So, on the third day, some women go to visit Jesus' tomb, only to find that it is empty. And then there is this angel standing there instructing them to go and tell this good news that Jesus is alive from the dead. But instead, they run away and they do not tell anyone because they are afraid, and that is how the book ends.
0: Which is a really
2: abrupt ending. Yeah, it's so abrupt that later scribes did add an ending that brings more closure to the story. And you'll find that story in your Bible with a little footnote that says it was added much later. But Mark's a brilliant storyteller, and he's intentionally ended this book abruptly. So all through the book, the disciples have been confused about Jesus' plan to give up his life, the story in the middle and now right here at the end. It's like Mark is acknowledging just how startling this claim really is. And he wants you, the reader, to wrestle with it for yourself. Is this crucified Jesus really the Messiah that they've been waiting for? We think the Bible is one grand unified story. That's okay. We don't need to
1: watch that. That's just their plug. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff you Bible project, you guys. Um, Isn't that helpful? Isn't it helpful just to get a general... It's like, a, it's like in high school when you have to read one of those big literary works, and you're like, ah, this is too intimidating. So you go by the SparkNotes version. That's what these videos are. Like, they're shortened-up versions for you to help to know what to look for and know what to pick up on. And so I would encourage you over the summer, please get into this book. Read it. Look and listen for the story. Look, go online. They've got videos for all kinds of questions. All those books you have no idea what to do with, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Job, how do we read those? They've got videos on all these that are really helpful for you to understand. And even Mark, how interesting is it that this gospel has this weird ending that later scribes added an ending on to? Isn't that fascinating? One of our gospels has like this extra ending that people are like, is it legit? Is it not legit? People start arguing about it. This is the, the, I'm wanting to enter into this cool story. The Bible's not this simple thing that's like, oh, just eat it and it's fine. It's something you dig into, something you wrestle with and it forms you as you read it. And as you engage with it, and I hope over the summer, this could be a chance for you to get a fresh start engaging with this book and allowing God and his spirit to transform you into Jesus. Because that's really what it's all about, eh? Us being made into Christ's likeness And the primary way that that happens is through us being shaped by that story. So why don't we stand? Uh, This team is going to lead us in one more song as we finish. Look, God, I'm the first to confess that often it's really hard to engage with your scriptures as well. Uh, God, I'm, I, I'm sure many of us are easily, we're tired, we're busy, there's lots of things for us to think about. And often these texts that were written thousands and thousands of years ago can seem really difficult for us to engage with. But God, I thank you that this doesn't all just rely on our own ability, but we continually look to you, Holy Spirit. Because you're the one that led the church before the scriptures were put together. You're the one that inspires these scriptures to to shape us and to form us and to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. And you're the one that is still with us. So Holy Spirit, I pray over this summer, would you encourage us? Would you poke us? Would you prod us? Would you kick us in the butt to engage with your story, with your word again? Because it is so precious to us. It's such a gift that we have. Help us to steward it well. And Lord, I pray that it would be a source of life. For many here as they get up and they, whether they decide to read in the morning first thing that they wake up on the day in their lunch breaks or at night before they go to bed, I pray that each and every time they get into this text, your spirit would begin to feed them. They would be nourished by your words, by the stories of you, Jesus. And that there would be an appetite or a hunger that develops for more they would long to know more that we would long to know more about who you are and about this great story you have presented us and called us to enter into so we confess our need for you but we also confess our hope in you that it is you who sustains us and carries us through it so we give you thanks and we give you praise in your name I pray amen
2: thanks team